No, you can still pass, but come see me. What they offer that class here again? What class? Philosophy of math. Oh. I saw that um, you were down and offered it. Yeah, that'd be cool. Okay, so who are you guys? Um, I'm Zoe. Hi. I'm Lydia. Um, we're in Okay, and and you're thinking about where to go. Uh, yeah. All right. Okay, so um, good. Uh, so uh, this is creative writing. Um, <laughs> that's actually the the um, boastful word Wordsworth uses about himself. Um, that he now stands as a sensitive and a creative soul. Um, it's an embarrassing line, but there are a lot of really good lines. Okay, so I don't know. Do you guys know Wordsworth at all? Okay, where are you from? Newton. And where are you from? Uh, Maine, Where in Maine? Westbrook. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's uh, an achievement and a really good achievement to unlock in life to come to like Wordsworth. And uh, did you guys find that you had to, had to come to like him or did you like him from the start? No, I came to like him. I think it was like today when I think started. <laughs> today? I mean, no, 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 today, today for the prelude. I think the pieces really, really came together for me. At the end? I didn't finish the, the <laughs> ending, but I got to where I think it's, it's turning. Okay, good. I think I liked him from even when we did the lyrical ballads, and even when we were starting the prelude and we were talking about the crag and the cave, like even then I liked him. Okay, good. Um, not yet? Eh, there are parts that I'm like, <laughs> I really like this, and then parts where I'm like, can you just, like, why? Why <laughs> are you taking so long to say this? But yeah. Um, what about the shorter poems? No? All right. Mm-hmm. I, like, I like the lyrical ballads. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I also like intimation though. Uh huh. Yeah. What about intimation side? Yes. Intimation side is good. All right. Good. Ariel. I think my mind's on overbrain. Like he's just so much easier to read. Are you gonna do it? Uh huh. I wish I was like, okay. At least I like understand what's going on here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so is that good? Yeah, I think so. All right. Me too. I agree with that. And what about you? Well, I never read much Wordsworth until last summer. Uh huh. And I never liked the lyrical ballads. I always thought they were awful. Which, you know, I thought maybe huh. it'd be like wiser this time around because I'd read that you know a long time ago. Yeah. Survey yeah. So then I thought that my mind would be changed like this time around. I still actually don't like them, um, but I really like the prelude and I like you know I've always loved Tim Turner Abbey. Yeah. Like I remember. Yeah. The first time I read that poem it was like really powerful. Okay. Like, I think it's a common experience. Yeah. And what about something like the Lucy poems? Yeah, I just don't... No, they don't do it. Like, I, for some reason, only like his, I guess, like, blank words. Like, I really like Michael. I like... Okay. I like the prelude. Yeah, yeah. I, but you like the intimations of it. No? Yeah, I like it, but it's but, also, it's hard all right. to like. It doesn't... To me, it, it's hard for it to sound good. It's, it's like, a little too sing-songy. Huh. Like, literally. Like, it doesn't... For, like, I really like that poem because I've had, like, this long relationship of, like, misunderstanding. Yeah. Um, but still, if only it didn't rhyme. Yeah, like, I like it. I, I, but I don't, like, wholeheartedly like it. All right. Do you like, <laughs> do you like um, the song's Minnesota and Experience? Yeah, and that's, that's one of those ones that I used to not like it, but now I really like it. Okay, so maybe that'll happen with lyrical ballads. Yeah. What about, what about um, Rhyming the Ancient Mariner? Yeah, that one I still don't... I, <laughs> Okay, no, it's interesting. Um, are, are you, 
you can't believe it. I love that film. Yeah, I know. Are you are you finding it difficult to believe that someone doesn't like it? Yeah. Yeah. All right. There you go. I shouldn't have said I'm a bad person. <laughs> I thought this class like I not that bad. Not that bad. <laughs> oh, you need oh, so I'm a bad like teacher. Because okay. yeah. yeah. it's like I also like like I like house a lot. Like yeah. I like rhyme. I'm not like anti rhyme. Yeah, you just anti words worthy and rhyme. Yeah. Do you like Pope? <laughs> well, he's been growing on me a lot. Like I was telling you, been growing. Pope's been growing on me. Okay. <laughs> So, and Wordsworth did not like Pope, so maybe it's a certain kind of rhyme that you like and a certain kind of rhyme you don't. Mm. That's interesting. That's, that's actually worth exploring. What, um, if you start making discriminations in the kind of practices of rhyming that you like and the practice of rhyming that you don't like, um, a, an obvious and clear and first discrimination would be... Uh, End stopped rhymes versus uh, verses and jam rhymes. So end stop is where you have punctuation at the end of a line, and so the line just uh, you really feel the end of the line. And um, enjambment is where the lines uh, flow from one line to another. The thought flows from one line to another. And you can have poetry that rhymes end stop poetry that rhymes and end stop poetry that doesn't. And you can have enjam poetry that rhymes and enjam poetry that doesn't. And it the rhymes are more prominent if they're end-stopped. That is, if she keeps saying, <coughs> we are seven, we are seven, um, and less prominent if they flow from line to line. And their poems, it's, there's always a really interesting category of poem. Browning's My Last Duchess is a really good example of this, of poems that you don't read. You know that one? Yeah. Yes, that's my last Duchess. Yes, um, uh, on the wall. Um, yeah, standing on the wall looking as, as though she were alive. That's a great pilot. Yeah. So that's a, that's a poem in rhymed couplets, but a lot of people don't notice that it rhymes. And the reason they don't notice that it rhymes is the sentences are so... And it rhymes prominently. Every line rhymes either with the line before or the line after it. That's my last Duchess hanging on the wall. Hi. Hello. Looking as though she were alive. I call that piece a wonder now. Frau Pendal's hands work busily a day, and there oh. she stands. And people don't notice that wall and call, I call that piece a wonder now, rhyme. And the whole poem rhymes that way, and lots of people can read it without noticing it. And then the most interesting category for me are poems that you think rhyme that don't. That is, that you remember them as rhyming, and yet they don't rhyme. And that's, so there you, you get interesting varieties of rhyming, but it might also be the kinds of words that rhyme with each other. Like one of the general rules um, in creative writing about rhyming is, and it's a rule derived from looking at lots of great poetry, is that you, t you don't want to rhyme the same part of speech. That is, if you, you shouldn't, um, if you rhyme light with night, then you should try to use light as a verb. Um, from, that they, from off their horses they light or something like that that what you want is, is similarity which is a similarity of sound but a similarity which is, which is connecting differences together so you have not um, uh, uh, day rhyming with clay um, which is an obvious uh, 
a reasonably obvious couple of lines that um, we're alive for a while and see the day and then we die and turn to clay. So you get an opposition between two words that rhyme, but the opposition is possible because they're two, they're in the same category of noun. So there are two nouns that are naming opposite states of being and there and the opposition is possible because what you're opposing are two things that are that belong to the same category. Breakfast versus dinner, summer versus winter, now versus later, day versus clay. And it's like opposing day and night, or like opposing night and light. So that's one kind of rhyme where you're taking two of the same generic thing, a time of year, um, a state of being, and so on, and bringing them close together by the fact that they rhyme, and nevertheless separating them or opposing them by the fact that they're opposed to each other, that they're antithetical to each other. But a more discreet kind of rhyming is one where you're not rhyming the same parts of speech. And what you'll notice on the whole is that poets tend to avoid rhyming the same parts of speech, that you get variety by not rhyming the same parts of speech. Yeah? Um, I had a question about the name of a literary device. Yeah. So it's like the words don't rhyme exactly, but they have a sonic relationship. <clears throat> For example, with war mm-hmm. and war. Well, they do rhyme. No, but isn't it like supposed to be like they have the same sound? Yeah, like the unit of the of sound is like the same. <coughs> well, it, maybe you're hearing the two words <coughs> differently. For for um, for where where I'm from, those words rhyme perfectly. War really? and whore. Yeah. War yeah. and whore. Yeah. Well, you're saying whore like prostitute. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're saying war like battle. Yeah. War and whore. You don't hear what they are. I mean, I do, but Okay, which, which is this... Okay, I'm not going to... I'm going to cover my mouth, and I'm going to say one of them, and I'm only going to give you the post-consonant part. So you ready? Yeah. Or... Which of the two is, was I saying? Or... Okay. Or... Oh, you said or that time. <laughs> yeah, there you heard the aspiration. Yeah. In my accent, they don't rhyme. So how did you say it? I'm not yeah. hearing the difference. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So tell. It's a pronounced So tell me. So okay. So what does war rhyme with that whore doesn't? Give me a third word. Far. So you think war rhymes with far? Kind of. I don't know. See, I would hear war and whore is a whole lot closer than war and far. Like T-O-R. Which rhymes with which one of those? War. War and tour. Okay, but not with horror. I think it's just like a little, the word. No, it's, no, no, it's really interesting. No, people hear different things. There's, um, um, do you know the, the anthropological distinction between emic and etic? Is that oh. something you'll hear Yeah, what is vaguely? emic and etic? So you have a vague memory, but yeah, you have a kind of etic relation to, yes, the, okay. <laughs> to the to the to the categories emic and etic. So um, emic is is how you understand something from the inside. That is, if you're part of a culture, then you understand why 
you know, it's obvious to you that certain things are gross, um, that other cultures don't regard as gross. So that, for example, um, I believe that in most Chinese cultures, milk products are regarded as gross by adults. That is, it's just milk, yuck, how can you possibly, how can you even? And, um, and, because there, yeah, because, because there's so much lactose intolerance. Um, but the point is, we can understand, we who like milk can understand from outside, from an etic point of view, a disgust for milk that we don't actually feel. So it's not like milk, oh yes, it just, that, that's kind of gross. It's, I understand why it's kind of gross to you, but the really weird thing is that I have to think about, um, to, to actually have the experience of grossness rather than the understanding of grossness, I have to think about something completely different um, to imagine what you're thinking about when you think about consuming milk. I have to think about eating snot or something. And um, oh, now this things kind of seem similar to me. Milk does. <laughs> to eating snot in a way, even though I like milk. Okay, so you so you're very quick at getting emic, which is good. So so the way it comes out, there, there's a reason for this, which is that. Um, there is a difference in linguistics, especially in the sound of, of s speech sounds, between what's called phonemic and what's called phonetic. So emic and etic are the, the suffixes for those two words. So phonetic is the exact sound transcribed as carefully as you possibly can, the exact sound of what someone is saying. In a sense, it's what a computer voice simulator would have to um, be programmed to be able to produce all these hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sounds that humans can produce. However, speakers of any language only really glom onto about 25 or 30 different consonants. And what happens if you speak a language, and, and I think a, a, an even smaller number of different vowels. So what happens is if you speak a language, you will hear some differences that people who don't speak that language won't hear. And you won't hear some differences that people who don't speak that language will hear. So one, again, a common error that native Chinese speakers make in speaking English is to confuse an L sound with an R sound. And um, that's probably the most common error that Chinese speakers make when they first learn English, is that they, they can't hear the difference between the letter R in race, let's say, and the letter L in lace. And the, the reason is that those two sounds are in fact extremely similar. The R in race and the L in lace are in fact really, really similar to each other. But if you're a native English speaker, you hear, you're very attuned to that difference, and you hear them as two different, as two different sounds, and you don't see how people can confuse them. But if you're not a native English speaker, then those sounds are, in fact, on a spectrum of sounds, you would find them very, very close to each other. So we make a big distinction between lace and race, but for a chi native Chinese speaker, the distinction is very, very tiny, and they have a great deal of trouble hearing it. On the other hand, 
we um, don't make a distinction that speakers of other languages do make between, I don't think we, we ever did this in this class, I did in a lot of classes, but hold your, um, no one has a match, right? Because we don't smoke because we're too smart for that, unlike our teachers when they were our age. Um, sorry? <laughs> what did you say? <clears throat> Some of them? I said, I, he admitted to smoke. Oh. But not, but not to tobacco. Cigarettes. Okay, so do you have do you have matches with you? Oh, like a lighter. No matches. Well, no. lighter's fine. Do you have a lighter? Uh, I don't. Well, I didn't think I was gonna smoke in class. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't think there would be any need for a lighter? No. Okay. You so. Yeah, really. Be prepared. It's the Brandeis yeah. motto. The Boy Scouts stole it from us. Okay. Saying the Lion King, you're fine. You just started quoting a line. He said, "Be prepared." Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. That is a Lion King quote. <laughs> <laughs> it's originally. I'm so a, slow to realizing. <laughs> it's originally a Boy Scouts quote. Yeah, that it is. You know what the Lion King, King is based on, right? I'm sure that somebody the Boy Scouts the Boy Scouts family. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Sorry, Savia. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so. Hold your fingers up in front of your mouth so you can, so when you talk, you can feel your breath. So just everyone say, um, I don't know, uh, go Red Sox. Go Red Sox. I'm from New York. All right. <laughs> okay, everyone say, go Trump. No. <laughs> this is a completely polit... All right, go. Well, no, I'm going to get more objection to that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. To just saying Wordsworth? To go Wordsworth. All right, just Wordsworth. 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 Okay, can you, do you feel where there's breath when you say Wordsworth? So do it again. Wordsworth. Wordsworth. So where are you feeling, what letters are you feeling the breath w. from? W. Okay, yeah. Wordsworth. Yeah, I mean, Wordsworth. Okay, say the word pen. Pen. Not pen, pin. It doesn't matter, but pin. 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 Like, uh, my life, I um, value it not a pin to set down in your service, as Kent says in King Lear. Okay, now do the same thing, but say the word spin, like put, the, put a spin on something. Spin. Spin. Now say pin again. Pin. Spin. Spin. Do you feel the difference? There's more breath in pin than spin. Yeah, the P in pin is said with a lot more breath than the P in spin. So most people, most native English speakers, don't know that. Even though they can say it right and they can hear it right, they don't know that they're actually pronouncing two different, what are called phonons. That is two different sounds. And if you were trying to write a program to teach a computer to um, simulate English speech, you might very easily get the computer saying, um, spin, and then you might write a little routine which says, okay, say spin, but without the S, and then it would say not pin, but it would say bin, and like putting something in a bin. So in fact, we don't hear a difference that a computer might hear between the P and spin, I mean the P and um, pin and, uh, no, I'm sorry, the P in spin and the B in bin. We don't really hear a difference between them, but there is a difference. So 
emic is when you think, oh yes, pin is just spin without the s, that's an emic relationship to those two words. They are just a P sound, and you simply experience it consciously as a P sound without knowing that, in fact, they're two different sounds, and they're fairly different from each other. And so when Chinese people hear an L and an R as the same sound, lace and race as the same sound, that is just the same way that we hear spin and pin as the same last three sounds. So people from other cultures can't believe that we're putting those two things together. Um, and they can probably come up with hilarious jokes in their language where someone means to say one thing that says the other. But in our language, we don't hear the difference, and our relation is emic. We're within it. We're experiencing it without calculation. We're experiencing it without having to figure anything out. It's natural to us. And therefore, what we do is we filter out differences that don't matter to us. Yeah? Um, in Russian, I have uh, there's two um, things that are called signs. There's a soft sign and a hard sign, mm -hmm. and most English speakers cannot recognize them. So what's an example? So like, um, if I want to say banya, then that has the soft sign in it, and it sounds very different to banya, mm -hmm. but it isn't quite banya. Mm -hmm. so there's just that kind of so it's the, the n sound, the n sound? Uh, yeah. Yeah. So banya. Banya. But it's ba not banya, it's banya. Banya. Yeah. Not quite. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so are, are you a native speaker of Russian? Um, are you natively bilingual or did you learn mm -hmm. Russian first? You're natively bilingual. Well, I learned Russian first, but only by like six months. Okay. Um, are you, when did you become aware of the fact that Russian doesn't use articles? When I was like eight and somebody asked me how to say the end in Russian, uh -huh. and I said that there's not really a way to say the, uh -huh. and then I just kind of realized. It was just like, wait, how yeah. does that work? Yeah. Yeah, so for lots of people who know about Russian but don't speak it. I'm sure a lot of you have had this. I keep having to repeat my mom's emails because she puts the wherever it doesn't belong and then put where it should be. Yeah. Okay, so have you guys like had this experience? Like sometimes um, uh, Russian uh, commenters on Facebook who are pretending to be from any town USA, <laughs> you can sometimes tell because they leave out articles that should be there. Um, they say, you know, Trump, very good president. And... Um, that's not an article, but it, yeah, it is. We, it, uh, um, someone who was actually from Alabama would say Trump is a very good president, but there's no is and there's no a, uh. and that's completely natural in Russian, but in English you can tell that it's someone who's not a native speaker of English who thinks this sounds natural, but it doesn't. I actually had that experience way older than you, so um, I can speak Serbian. And it was only really recently that I learned what I knew, but didn't know I knew, which is that there are no articles in Serbian either. And it was like, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking, so how do people live without articles? They're so useful and helpful. And it never occurred to me that I could live without articles just fine. 
in Serbian. Can you speak fluent Serbian? No, but I, I, when I was a kid, I was reasonably fluent and I could understand it. Um, and I can't understand it. Is that the same as like no gender in a language? Yes, that would be another thing. Like, how do you oh. do a language that has no gender? Well, my language in some has no gender. Yeah. So you, if you, you mean like, no gender at all? So pronouns no, for people are. No, so like if you're overhearing two women gossiping in a car or like in a public taxi, for example, you understand the gender of the person they're talking about through context. But not at all through. But not at all through. Uh, through, 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 through. Is there? Shauna? Yeah. yeah. It's like, if you know Swahili, um, not what you see. <laughs> yeah. It's like a cousin. Oh, cool. Like a distant relation. Yeah. yeah. A bunch of them. Yeah. That's yeah. great. Yeah, so it, was that your first language? Or, or are you bilingual? Or was it English so your first language? I, well, I, first, I learned English and Shauna at the same time. Uh-huh. Yeah. Those and were my first two languages. And so was there a, t- was there a time um, as, I'm sorry, what's your name again? As Lydia was. Yida. 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 No, I can't. Yida. 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 Yeah. No, I'm. That's what I'm saying, dude. Dude, it's what I'm saying. There's a le and there's a la. Yeah. Yeah. There's a la and there's a la. Yeah, I might be just being embarrassed because I because there is in Serbian also. Ljubim ruka means I kiss your hand. How do you say kiss? Okay, no, but there isn't a <laughs> no, there isn't a, a word with kiss starting with the L sound yet. No. Huh. Okay. Well, you mean like love, ljubov. Okay, and is that a y or le? Le. All right. So it's different in Serbian. I mean, they're similar languages, but the pronunciation is 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 fairly different. You can probably read Serbian, but you probably couldn't quite follow it um, spoken. Um, Sorry? Yeah, I sometimes play on chess.com with Serbian players. God, the things they will say. (laughs) It's just amazing. They they are completely uncensored. Um, You take a pawn and (laughs) the things they tell you about your mother. Um, So, was there a time when you suddenly realized there was a difference yeah. that you that there were things you could do or understand about who they were talking about in English that in um, Shona wouldn't be there and that there are yeah. things you could understand about Shona that in English there wouldn't be? Well, it was when I started learning German. Oh, so you had a third language to triangulate with. Yeah, so it was like, well, because in German there are three articles, the Adidas. Yeah. And... Yeah, so being like forced to think of every object, it's like, is it deity or darsa? Yeah. Like, can Shana even have that? Like, you don't have to worry about yeah. because it's female, male, or neutral. Yeah. It's just a thing, it's just a book. Yeah. So, yeah, that's when I kind of realized, like, oh, we don't have articles in Shona. And, but you were, you were fluent in both English and Shona, and yeah. there, it wasn't a difference that you were I aware never, of. I yeah, so, so that's because you were emic in both. And what that means is you weren't seeing either from the outside, but then you were etic in German. You see German from the outside, and you become aware of these rules that um, are just completely natural to you in a language that, that you're native to. Yeah. In Russian, everything is gendered. Yeah. And there's female, male, and other. Yeah. And it's weird. Yeah. Because, like, I'm... 
I remember being as a kid uh, being really confused as to why English wasn't gendered, why everything was it. Yeah. Because in Russian, the it pronoun has, is kind of mean. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of mean. Yeah, yeah. If you, um, and most things, if you refer to them as it, it's insulting the object. It's insulting towards the object. That's you call the person it in English, that can be insulting. Yeah, yeah, but, there's, but a if you, there's a difference kind of in Russian that doesn't hit as hard in English. Here, can I borrow your pen? Take it. Oh, you don't like your pen, huh? <laughs> yeah, essentially. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that in French, actually, even though objects have like masculine and feminine sound, like masculine and feminine attached to them, like you don't say his book or her book, actually, like... Uh-huh. The of the book. Yeah. It's also you don't know if it's a boy's book or a girl's book. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of France. Yeah. So back to the point. <laughs> Sorry. No. So the but the point then is that there are emic and etic relations we have to rhymes, and the um, emic relation to rhyme means that you may not notice a difference in how rhymes are being used. That nevertheless will have a psychological difference. So, now you understand. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that, right. That's what you were talking about. Yes. Wordsworth and his rhyme. Right. Okay. So, we were looking actually at book six. Yeah. And um, where um, they discover that they have crossed the Alps without knowing it. This is page 254. If you have the Norton or it is book six line um, 547 or 548. I agree. The dull and heavy slackening. Yes. So, um, do you want to read that? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. The dull and heavy slackening which ensued upon these uh, upon those tidings by the peasant given was soon dislodged. Okay, so uh, just remind us what the tidings are. The peasant told them that they were at the Alps. Oh, that they, they'd they already crossed, crossed the Alps. Yeah. yeah, that this thing that they were looking forward to, there were certain things they promised themselves. One was seeing Mont Blanc, which then turns out to be meh, um, to Wordsworth's surprise. And another is to, to cross the Alps to be... Um, from one area of all of Europe to move to another area. The Alps are the great boundary. And that, well, that's what they did, and that's what's so disappointing to them, is they're just, you know, they're on this pathway, and they're going uphill, and it's going up and down and up and down, and then they lose sight of where they are, and they retrace their steps. And this is what we're looking at on Monday. The story he tells is, and um, we were told to follow this little brook, and this was puzzling because the brook, we were going the same direction the brook was, but we were trying to cross the Alps, so the water should have been flowing the other way. And finally we asked, and we're told, no, you've already crossed the Alps. And that's, therefore, their, their reaction to that is a dull and heavy slackening. Like, this, was, this, was, this is what I was looking for? Is that all there is to crossing the Alps? So go on. Downwards we hurried fast, and entered with the road which, uh, the road which we had missed into a narrow chasm. The brook and road were fellowed. Uh, the brook and road, into a narrow chasm. The brook and road were fellow travelers in this gloomy pass, and with them did we journey several hours at a slow step. So they're in this in this chasm that they're not expecting, and it goes on for hours. 
And then this amazing description. The immeasurable height of woods decay, never to be decayed, the stationary blasts of waterfalls, and everywhere along the hollow rent, winds, thwarting winds, bewildered and forlorn, the torrents shooting from the clear blue sky, the rocks that muttered close upon our ears, black drizzling crags that spake by the wayside as if a voice were in them, the sick sight and giddy prospect of the raving stream, the unfettered clouds and region of the heavens, tumult and peace, darkness and the light, were all like workings of one mind, features of the same face, blossoms upon one tree, characters of the great apocalypse, the types and symbols of eternity, of first and last and midst without end. Great, thank you. So um, you'll remember that that's the line from Paradise Lost that Wordsworth secularizes, that the angels praise God, him first, him last, him midst, and without end. <coughs> so... Is the, that... I just noticed this, now. is that meant... I just before read that it's midst. Is he deliberately substituting mist for midst? Um, oh, I... I have or is that... It's, no, I think is that this a typo, is, or...? I, I, what does the footnote say? Uh, near quotation Paris lost, blah, 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 blah. Um, the type actually doesn't say anything about it, does it? Yeah, or is um, that an archaism for... It must myths? be an archaism. It's but strange. It, I didn't notice yeah, this. But, but that's right, because he's talking about mist before. Like yeah. The, all the water in the chasm. Yeah, but it would be such <laughs> a bad line. Yeah. Um, oh, look. First and last and mist, too. And without an no, it, ju- it would just be the wrong category. It would be a really bad category error. But I'm just looking if, um, and the footnote doesn't say anything about why he picked mist. Um, it might be that that's Wordsworth was not a good speller, and it might be that that's how he spelt it. Do you have a different spelling? I have M I D S T. Yeah, I have M I D S T. I think that's well. that may be. Um, Halmy doesn't say anything about it. Um, does anyone have the 1850 prelude? Um, or I can just. You have a Norton edition, right? Yeah, no, and you have the norm. Yeah. Yeah, so, oh, you have midst in the norm. I have midst. I have midst, too. Oh, okay, so I think it's just a pure and simple typo. Uh, I had a friend in grad school who told Norton whenever he saw a typo, he collected them, and they actually have a lot of typos. And um, every 20, he would send them a list of typos, and then they would send him a free Norton book. So, uh, I find that. When I have to close read, I always find typos in the books I read for class. I yeah. I should send them in. Yeah, you should. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I didn't think they were working. No. It's like, so. oh, you have two does there. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, all right, good. So now we know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I found that funny. No, it is. In Russian, you would have none. You would have <gasps> zero of those. Okay. In Russian, it's hard to make typos because the whole language just makes no sense already. <laughs> uh, now, we're, now we're getting a little bit etic. Um, okay, so, so what happens? They cross, they cross the Alps. It's all a moment of unhappiness. And then they get this, um, this moment of sublimity, right, where they're not expecting it. The immeasurable height of woods decaying Never to be decayed. Why never to be decayed if they're decaying? What does that line mean? They're frozen. They're frozen is what it sounds like, the stationary blasts of waterfalls. But are they really? Is, is he really describing a kind of sleeping beauty fairy tale kingdom? Mm-hmm. Or is he describing real nature? 
like that the process of decay will never be completed. Yeah, that that what it means to be woods is to always be decaying, because there are always things dying in the woods. Um, but that that process will go on forever. The woods decaying, never to be decayed. Does anyone know the Tennyson poem to Thonus? It begins with the line, the woods decay, the woods decay and fall, um, and it, which is a clear reference to this moment in the prelude. The, the poem to Thonus is the mythological figure who turns in, who's given immortality, but not, not eternal youth. So he is getting older and older and older, but can't die. And that's the, the story of Tithonus is the story that Tennyson tells in that poem. And Tithonus is complaining that the woods decay and then they fall. They die completely. They don't just decay forever, but he will decay forever. So um, Wordsworth is the source of that opening line. The woods decaying never to be decayed. The immeasurable height of woods decaying never to be decayed. The stationary blasts of waterfalls. So the waterfalls are blasting constantly, but they're stationary because they're, it's, it's the same thing is occurring. It's an amazing line. The stationary blasts of waterfalls. And everywhere along the hollow rent, winds thwarting winds, bewildered and forlorn. So it's a place of um, intense activity with nothing happening, with nothing happening. The woods are decaying, but they don't decay. The waterfalls blast, but they're stationary in their blast. That's an amazing phrase, the stationary blast of waterfalls. The torrents shooting from the clear blue sky, the rocks that muttered close upon our ears. So again, that's like the forms that chased him in the boat-stealing scene, the footsteps that he could hear that do not live like living men. Um, the unfettered clouds and regions of the heaven, all of this were like the workings of one face, as though nature itself is this strange and weird face that he's seeing, and that this is the very center of things, and it comes unexpectedly. It's not something that's there for humans. There's a face there. It's worth looking at the word face in Wordsworth which you'll see over and over again. He talks about the speaking face of nature. Do you have the workings of one face? Um, do I not? I have uh, the workings of one Oh, one mind, mind. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, the features of the same face. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was just, I was uh, telescoping those together. Yeah, the workings of one mind, the features of the same face, blossoms upon one tree, characters of the great apocalypse. That is a text that you can read the text of some great revelation. But what's being revealed here is what? So remember, apocalypse means revelation, means that a secret is being uncovered. And the characters of an apocalypse are the letters that the text uncovering the secret are written in. Um, so they, they can be symbolic characters. You can think of them as hieroglyphic, which he is thinking of, but they are essentially a text in which a prophecy is spoken. So how is, what is being revealed here? What makes this a great apocalypse? So 
vision of eternity. It's a vision of eternity. Good. But the vision of eternity seems to be itself rather than anything else. That is, it's as though what he's seeing, this is why the paradoxes of the stationary blast of waterfalls, the woods decaying, never to be decayed, is that everything that he's seeing is referring to its own endlessness. So it's an endless reference to its own endless reference. That's putting it a little bit too easily, or maybe too paradoxically, but I think that's ultimately what's happening here, is that he's in a place where there's a turmoil of nature which is indifferent to humanity, and what it reveals is only the fact that it's revealing itself, revealing its indifference. Characters of a great apocalypse, um, types and symbols of eternity, yeah, the types and symbols of eternity means, okay, this is what eternity looks like, a first and last and midst and without end. But the without end here is not world without end. It's not the Lord's Prayer, world without end, amen. It's simply that this froth and furor will keep going forever. And what, it's, what the way it goes on forever reveals is that it will keep going on forever. And that moment is, is thunder-striking for him and for um, his companions. And it's a moment not in which nature comes to um, show some greater meaning, but in which nature again shows itself as a place of estrangement, as a place of estrangement from meaning. It's almost as though what you're getting, there are types and symbols of <coughs> eternity but it turns out that what eternity is is just the fact that, there, that it has types. It, it is its own presentation as types and symbols of something that you will never be able to assimilate or absorb or make sense of. Yeah. Yes, I have two questions. Like the first, so does it mean like eternity, the definition of eternity is anything that evades meaning? Yeah, it's, it, well, not anything that evades meaning, but... Um, it's the evasion of meaning itself. The evasion of meaning itself. Yeah. Okay. It's evasion a, of meaning. Yeah. <clears throat> so which makes me think of how, like, not nature, but people can be eternal. So, like, for example, Shakespeare. Uh-huh. And how his words... Or Notre Dame. Well, there's a famous poem. Did you guys look at any of the poetry about Notre Dame? Um, there's a famous uh, romantic poem. So this is actually <laughs> uh, more relevant maybe even than Pin and Spin. Um, the greatest romantic poet in, in France in the 19th century was Victor Hugo. And he's also famous for a few novels, I'm told. Um, I didn't know he was a poet. Yeah, no, no. And he's, for in, in a lot of people's estimations, not, this is not a universal opinion, but it's... Uh, probably a plurality opinion is that he is the greatest poet of the 19th century in French. And um, his poetry really is amazing. But at any rate, his friend, Georges de Nerval, uh, wrote a poem in, eight, in the 1840s or something um, called Notre Dame, in which the way the poem goes is that uh, Notre Dame was here before Paris and we'll see Paris buried, is how it begins. And the... Um, 
Victor Hugo has um, made it into um, this great thing that will um, um, outlive Paris, but in thousands of years it too will collapse. But people who come to see it, or who come to the site of this great collapse, will imagine that they see it because of reading um, Hugo, and it will stand there like the ghost of its own death. And um, so that idea that Notre Dame becomes a symbol of something that the only thing it could possibly symbolize is Notre Dame, that in a way is, roman is, 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 is drawing from the same well that Wordsworth is drawing from here, that what these what the waterfalls in the woods represent are the waterfalls in the woods. But it's not that they represent, oh yes, waterfalls in the woods, now I see. It's that they represent the fact that waterfalls and woods represent nothing except what I've just said. That is, that there's this working of one mind you know, working as in when your face is working, when you're um, all all upset and your features are working. It's this immense, chaotic, passionate, intense energy, which is symbolizing a chaotic and passionate and intense energy whose energy goes into symbolizing and into nothing else. And what that means is, I mean, a way to put it, again, I don't want to be too... Um, quick about this or make it too too clear cut, make something that's as resistant to understanding here into an easy um, symbol of a resistance to understanding. Um, but the what is happening there is is that the idea of the symbol is that in general is that it is a conduit to the thing that it symbolizes. That if you see um, the uh, symbol for a bathroom, that means that you push the door and you'll find a bathroom there. And that's good. So symbols generally are things that, that mediate between the interpreter of the symbol and what that interpreter wants. And when you are instead given a symbol that symbolizes the fact that it only symbolizes itself, that, that symbolizes itself and symbolizes its own symbolic quality rather than symbolizing something beyond that symbolic quality. So what do these things symbolize? They don't symbolize God, because this is very much, as Blake said, an atheist moment in the prelude, or this is Wordsworth being atheist, atheistical, at least as far as Blake is concerned. So these things don't symbolize God, they don't symbolize transcendence, they don't symbolize some other world, they don't symbolize um, some uh, hope or fear of what will come after death. They are this working of nature and it's intense working because it's doing the intense working that religious um, meaning would have if you read the world as having religious meaning. But it's only saying that this intense working will never come to an end. That what you are seeing here is a symbol of the fact that this will happen forever. 
and that this, therefore, this process of symbolization of its own going on forever is a process that will go on forever. So it's symbolizing its own, it's eternally symbolizing its own eternal symbolizing. And don't let that turn into, ah, so here is eternity itself, and now we have a sense of eternity and we feel a kind of mystic um, uh, transcendence or, or assumption into the mystic, because it's not. It's resistance to being assimilated or assumed into the mystic. That's why it's midst and not mist. Um, doesn't quite work, but um, it's, it's uh, that it's a, a complete refusal ever to do anything but symbolize its refusal to allow a human to feel at home there. And it's that not feeling at home that we're getting at one of its most powerful statements here. I like to think about it as um, the distinction between our own time and, and geological time. Yeah. Like there are processes that just take place outside of our ability to perceive them. Yeah. And there might be tons of action and drama and and whatever, but we will never get to see it. It takes too long. Yeah. So yeah. I, I like that Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, Love you. Like the idea of like the repetition of the motion of making it eternal, like the stationary blast of waterfalls, like if you just poured like one bucket of water off of the cliff, like that movement would have like meaning. Yeah, exactly. And consequences, but like because it's like a like that movement is being constantly constantly repeated, it becomes almost still and it's like eternity. Mm-hmm. But then I feel like if you like extend that to like their motion across the Alps, mm-hmm. like that in and of itself, like because like so many people are gonna do that journey nice. before and after them, yeah. their journey loses meaning. Okay, good. Yeah. So that the, so that and the very fact that they cross the Alps without even knowing yeah. it is yeah, they're just doing what all these other people did and they're just part of this general circulation of things. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. If only they had taken the path the less travel by. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it to me it's kind of like at least to me what one of the spooky things about death is is that the world is gonna just keep going on and on yeah. and on and you're not gonna be there for the rest of it and you're gonna become irrelevant for the rest of yeah. it and the world doesn't care that you're gone Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of, whether Wordsworth is here watching the waterfall or not, it doesn't care. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a symbol not intended for a reader. Yeah, good, yeah. nice, yeah. <clears throat> see, that was my, my point about, like, I don't think that you become irrelevant, like, after, or at least if you, like, follow a Blakean philosophy, of, or, like, even in this, I feel like the essence of of being human is not the body. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, it's gonna, we're gonna die. But like, the work that we did in our, like, living is like our essence, I feel. Mm-hmm. Like when we have that Thomas Gray talking about like, the energy in a country. Country churchyard, yeah. It's like, he's remembered, it's like, yeah, that's, I feel like that's how it kind of sums up, like, the point of, like, being here isn't to always be here, mm-hmm. but it's like a seed. Yeah. And then you, like, crack, and then you open your gifts or whatever, and then you die, and then that essence 
sort of stays around forever. So it's like Shakespeare. Like, he wrote in like the 1600s, but we're still talking about him today. Yeah. So he hasn't died. And what like, what, what he would he think? Well, he's only died physically. And he's not dead while his name's still spoken. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, honestly, but I'm saying those 400 years are like gonna be nothing, and they are nothing. But I feel like he's in, he's infinite in that, like you know, even up until today, we still struggle coming up with like what he meant. It's like there are multiple meanings of what his work could have meant. So in that sense, isn't he eternal? Yeah, yeah. Um, but here, what you're looking at are multiple meanings. Wait, say again. Yeah, but the the thing is, he isn't, right? Mm-hmm. So the fact that he isn't is the um, uh, the strangeness here that that there's something there that is com- that completely doesn't care about the human. Yeah. And you can say that um, maybe following up on what Nicole says is that um, that's what it means that that humans stop caring when they're dead, also. So that this. Um, non-carelessness or this non-caring is uh, something that um, will is our future and that would be the decaying part of the woods decaying never to be decayed that is that the decay is, is endless but see, that was well, I was thinking of that line also as well maybe I'm overthinking it but I was thinking it like as a metaphor for that kind of even if he's against the whole transcending you're going to like whatever world after this. But I feel like it's it's sort of ambiguous in that like the the process of like it's like, okay, so is anything really finite in that sense if we or like how things yeah. Well, say more. What do you mean? So it's like well, when he says that, um, when he represents the decaying as this eternal, almost like, yeah, this like process that's never gonna end. Mm-hmm. And well, yeah, I don't know. It's like, <clears throat> is he asking us to aspire to that? I don't think so. I think what he's doing is so. That's that would be, if you think of it in terms of the intimations ode, again. The idea would be something like what happens is we have a belief that there is a transcendent place. And for me, I began by thinking that transcendent place was childhood. And then I thought myself through to an idea that the transcendent place was not childhood, but some platonic pre-existence of which childhood was the first step away. And now, um, what I'm thinking is just feeling away from that place is what it means to be in that place. That the feeling of, of being not in touch with something transcendent is itself the transcendence that is, is itself the truth, that there is no transcendence and that you can't touch it and you can't be in touch with it. 
that, you know, to, again, to put it too simply, that there is no truth. And the truth is that there is no truth. That, that is that you have achieved something like truth in understanding that there is no truth. But you haven't achieved the truth that you were seeking to begin with. And it's realizing that the truth that you were seeking to begin with, the capital T truth, doesn't exist, becomes itself the truth that overpowers any capital T truth. And being able to, and what can you do with that? Well, the answer is you can write a poem about it. The answer is that the place that can tell the truth without, tell the truth without thinking there is truth, that's a really hard thing to do. It seems illogical. But the one discourse that can tell the truth that there is no truth without thereby making that into a truth. Again, I don't want it to become a facile paradox, but the one discourse that can tell the truth, the truth being that there is no truth, without thereby making that into a truth, is literature, is the discourse of fiction, is uh, something that whose force and power and penetration and, and overwhelmingness doesn't have to do with revealing something outside of it to you. You know, if you think about the weirdness of literature, the weirdness of literature is, is that you're being told something, you're being given language, you're being offered a representation of something, if you say that language is representational, then you're being offered a representation of something, but you're not being, but all that matters is the representation. It's, you're not being offered a representation of anything outside of what you're reading. You're being offered a representation of the experience of reading it. And that can be powerful when the representation of the experience of reading it is a representation of let's call it the nothingness of everything else, or even the nothingness of everything. That is, if it turns out that the only truth is to be found in literature, then there is no truth, because literature is fiction, is fictional. And if the only truth is to be found there, then on the one hand, the experience of literature becomes extraordinarily central to to the deepest mental experiences you can have. And on the other hand, none of that is transcendent. None of that is offering you a world outside of the meaninglessness of your world. And so again, what he does in the Intimation Zone is that he makes the loss of experience into an experience of loss. And, but it really matters that it's an experience of loss, not that, oh, it's okay because it wasn't a true loss because I have the experience of loss. No, what it, you do have the experience, but what it's an experience of is loss, and a loss that is never to be made good. And so what you get for losing the world and losing hope in the world and losing nature in Wordsworth's, in, in Wordsworth's terminology is that you get 
the you get literature. The trade that you make is the world for literature, and that's a, that's a metaphor or um, an idea that that not lots of but a considerable number of later later writers will get out of Romanticism. Uh, Mallarmé famously said that the world was created in order to um, make a book possible. That the reason for the world is that it, the world makes books possible, and that the world will end in a single book. And that idea then, obviously it's not true in any sense of factual truth, um, but it is true in the sense of literary experience. And for Wordsworth, for whom that was everything, that to understand that nature betrays you, but that that betrayal itself is the subject of poetry, means that poetry is doing, is substituting for nature. And the way poetry substitutes for nature is by not thinking that it's nature, but thinking that it's the loss of nature, thinking that it's about how nature betrays you. So let's just keep going, because most people stop reading here when, when, or most people who write about book six, if you read articles about book six, et cetera, this is the passage that they stop at. Um, but then there's a strange little thing that happens after that. Um, um, I'm sorry, what was your name? Zoe. Zoe, can you read the next part starting that night? That night our lodging was an alpine house, an inn or hospital as they are named, standing in the same valley by itself, including a confluence of two streams, a dreary mansion, large beyond all need, with high and spacious rooms, deafened and stunned. By noise of waters making innocent sleep, lie melancholy among weary bones. Thank you. Um, do people recognize innocent sleep? That phrase. Macbeth. Yeah. Um, Macbeth hears the voice saying, "Sleep no more. The innocent sleep is dead." Um, the innocent sleep is dead. Yeah. I don't think I'm quoting that exactly right, but yeah. I, think, I think later there's a. I forget which book, but there's a direct. Um, the city tells. Oh, it might be nine or ten. Yeah. The city sleeps no more. Yeah. No yeah. Another yeah. direct Macbeth. Another direct Macbeth quote, yeah. So um what what how does it go? When she says small as a doll in my dress of innocence, I lay dreaming your epic image by That's great. That's great. Nice. Do you see the picture of Sylvia Plath in front of Notre Dame that was going around yesterday? Yeah. It's, it's a neat picture, yeah. Really? Yeah. Where was she? She... <laughs> <laughs> on vacation. <laughs> I'll show it to you right after class. People cancel vacation. It's Sylvia Plath in 1956, just walking on the Parvis in front of Notre Dame. Um, yeah. So... Um, Dorothy Wordsworth, in her journal, um, describes going back. So uh, Dorothy and William redid some of this trip in 1822. 
so 30 years or, or um, 25 years later. They redid some of the trip um, and crossed the Alps again, and Wordsworth pointed stuff out. And um, Dorothy said that they actually got to that inn or hospital that he described there. And she says, it's a very mysterious uh, moment in her journal, um, just for, for you guys, Dorothy was William's sister. And um, they were very, very close. And she kept journals of many of the same incidents and events and things that, that William wrote poetry about. And her journals are great. So she said, then we got back to that place that William had described and had terrified us so much in his description of, and he on no account would be induced to go in. And so they kept walking. So that's all we know about it, is that what he describes here, and then somehow, even a quarter of a century later, even after Wordsworth was dead, he couldn't go into that house. Um, the joke there being that Wordsworth died as a poet um, by 1814. He was dead as a poet. And he lived to what, 1870? Or? 1850. 18. Yeah. Uh, so, but even then, when he was, when he become a tedious old fart, he still couldn't be induced to going into that house. So something really spooky happened there. That night our lodging was an alpine house. And just think about what is, this what is this first paragraph doing in here? It's like so, but somehow something happened there. There was something so disturbing that night, just in the experience of his insomnia that night, that even a quarter century later, it was too disturbing for him to face. That night our lodging was an alpine house and inn or hospitals there named standing in that same valley by itself and close upon the confluence of two streams, a dreary mansion, large beyond all need, with high and spacious rooms, deafened and stunned by noise of waters, making innocent sleep lie melancholy among weary bones. So the next day they're out of there and they're really glad to be out of there. It's the nature that makes it unsleepable. It's that yeah. makes it strange if there wasn't water. Yeah, if it wasn't deafened and stunned by noise of water. I didn't notice that. The noise of water is a creepy <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> actually. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that that somehow all of that is yeah, he's surrounded by nature. And um, what he is feeling, again, is completely not at home. Um, so if you look at that night, our lodging was an alpine house. If, um, um, sorry. Uh, I'm not finding what, I'm, what I wanted to look for. But um, that feeling of being dislodged even in a lodging that's the homelessness that we've been talking about um, let's go back for a minute to book five to the Winander Boy section so that's um, book five around line um, uh, three 
Um, yeah. Um, do you want to read that? Uh, book 5, line 389. So when Ander is one of the lakes in the Lake District. Um, yeah, just read the day. read a little bit more. And this boy was taken from his mates and died in childhood ere he was full ten years old. Fair are the woods and beauteous is the spot, the vale where he was born. The churchyard hangs upon the slope above the village school. And there along that bank, when I have passed the evening, I believe that oftentimes a full half hour together I have stood mute, looking at the grave in which you are. Great, thank you. Um, so Wordsworth actually published that separately. Uh, uh, little bits and pieces of the prelude he published um, in his lifetime over the course of, especially in the, in the first decade of the 19th century. Um, and this was published as a separate poem. Nutting might have originally been part of the prelude as well. Uh, we looked briefly, or we talked briefly about Nutting. We didn't actually look at it. And it, in the end, it's not part of the prelude. The Winander Boy, though, is. So one interesting thing, which if you read the note, you'll know, is in the first versions, it's a first-person um, poem. That is, it begins, there was a boy, he knew him well, Eclipse and Islands of Winander, and then it goes, many, at a, many a time at evening when the stars had just begun to move along the edges of the hills, rising or setting, would I stand alone beneath the trees? So when he says there was a boy, he means himself. Um, and it's not there was a boy and also I would stand alone. It's there was a boy and I was that boy. That boy is me, but I'm now seeing it from a perspective of far away. But then later on, the perspective becomes so far away that the boy dies. And so in some literal sense, in this version, it can't be him because the boy is dead. So what does the boy do? Can you quickly plot summarize that section? He makes kind of all sounds to see if they respond. Yeah. So he would do, just notice the, again, the really interesting ordering of things and um, that he would, with fingers interwoven, both hands pressed closely, palm to palm and to his mouth opened. He, as through an instrument, blew mimic hootings to the silent owls. Um, so what's he mimicking? He's mimicking owls, but the owls are silent. So there's an interesting reversal that he wants here, which is that the mimic or the imitation or the mimesis is coming before the thing that it is mimicking. It's not hard to make sense of it. I'm not saying that this is 
that, that you can't understand this. Basically, it's he knows what owls sound like, so he mimics their sound, trying to get them to produce the same sounds back to him. Um, that's, that itself is not a particularly puzzling idea. But what is interesting about it is that the word mimic comes before, and in this episode, what the boy does, he does before the thing that he's mimicking. That the imitation, that the representation, that the mimesis, to use Aristotle's word for, for what, what narrative does, that the mimesis occurs before the thing that it mimics. Mm -hmm. And then, just to go on with that for a second, so... And they would shout. So he would go, woo, and the owls would go, woo. And he would have this relationship with nature, this back and forth with nature. They would shout across the watery veil and shout again, responsive to his call, with quivering peals and long halloos and screams and echoes loud, redoubled and redoubled, a conqueror's wild of mirth and joke and din. And when it chanced, that pauses of deep silence mocked his skill. So sometimes, yeah, <laughs> sometimes he would do it, and instead, nothing would happen. Um, what does the word mock there mean? Make fun of. Make fun of. How is mockery... Yeah, do you know why the word mock means that? It's, it started out, I think, as meaning mimic. Yes, yeah, the word mock means mimic. It means that if you mock someone, it's like when President Trump mocked that New York Times reporter who had, um, I think he has multiple sclerosis, and Trump said, you should see this guy. You all know this video. Um, and then he mocked him by mimicking him. So, yeah, so somehow silence is mocking or mimicking the boy. And then the silence gets carried far into his heart. That's the phrase that De Quincey loves so much. Okay, bye. Have good a good luck. break. Do you need good luck? Good luck. Good luck. So, so that, that mocking, which takes the form of silence, that they mocked his skill by being silent. So in some sense, what his skill is, is... Sorry? It's silence. It's silence itself. Ultimately, and again, I think that's another place where you can feel that Wordsworth's relationship to nature is ultimately a relationship to a relationship to nature. That it's about the fact that he doesn't live in nature, but can only have a relationship to it, and that means that it connects him but it separates him as much as it connects him. That's that frontier aspect of it that I was talking about on Monday. Okay, you guys, have a good break. And uh, if you haven't finished the prelude... That'll be, yeah, that'll be It's easy now, it's only 30 more pages. Yeah, okay, good. And we'll definitely do book 13 on... I want to do the spots of time part. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and we'll also definitely do book 13. Okay, have a good break. Should we read it in Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're not that far behind. But 30 pages, two weeks, it's not that bad. No, no, it's really good. It's not that we'll get to it, but read it. <laughs> yeah, and there's... Actually, some... it's today, it's... today I'm really... Good. Yeah. Good. 
All right. Thank nice you. to meet you. You too. Take care. If you come, come find me next year if you come. Okay. Okay. Oh yes, picture will be a plan. Thanks, very nice to meet you. Bye bye. Bye. Uh, give me one second. Yes. I, I never even walk in that direction. I, yeah, I tend to do that. Like, I tend to, like, recite poetry. That's great. Here you go. Oh. Wow. No. That's the front's all still there.